0: Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. your Bibles, John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. Just as a way of introduction, I think that on the heels of this incredibly busy season, there's a word that seems to somewhat run throughout the entirety of at bare minimum the Christians, the Christmas season, and that word is peace. I mean, oftentimes you have it on your mantles, you have it placed really throughout um, your, your home and very likely have even heard it read or said over the season. There's this language that's used, and it's essentially the language of peace be with you. Or that we look at the incarnation of Christ and as he is incarnate, as he is born into that manger scene, we have this proclamation of peace toward men. This morning what I'd like to do is perhaps cause us to meditate upon that. To have us to think just for a moment on the peace of God and ultimately how it is brought to us in the person of Christ. Now I do think we do well to perhaps place it into context between our natural state and the peace that Christ gives. So just for a moment, can we consider our natural state before we dive into the text? Friends, is there any peace within us? I mean, genuinely, we're born into the world giving completely over to our emotions. Essentially, everything that we do, everything that we believe, everything that we think is almost completely and totally dictated by how we feel. As we grow and mature in life just as human beings, likely there will be logic and things like that that will come in. But oftentimes, logic will cause you to be more fearful than anything else. This morning, what I hope to do is perhaps cause us to fix our eyes on the one who is able to give a peace that is not subject to circumstances, but a peace that is completely and totally built into his person. That should we know him and should we understand him, should we believe in him, should we cast ourselves on him, then what we will have when all is said and done at the end of the age and even in the midst every circumstance that arises here on this earth is Christ. And he brings us an everlasting peace. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Indeed, it is the word of God. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19 and making our way through verse 23, it says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that inspired it, and this morning we thank you for the Christ who gives it. And Lord, we ask you, would you help us to behold him? Would you help us to see him rightly? Lord, would you help us as we walk out of this place this morning to be meditating upon him, to adore him, and to long to be obedient unto him? It is in the name of Jesus, and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is this. Through the resurrected Christ, We have peace with God, are empowered by the Spirit, and are given a message of certainty. I know it's a bit longer, but I've given you short ones lately. It'll be okay. Through the resurrected Christ, we have peace with God, are empowered by the Spirit, and are given a message of certainty. We have been walking our way through this narrative. We are coming really to the end of the book of John, and as we've been walking through this book, we have seen time and time again the Lord Jesus Christ prepare his disciples for his departure. We've seen time and time again the Lord prepare his disciples not only for his departure, but also for the giving of the Spirit. And now we are easing up on the moment where Christ will indeed depart. He will ascend and he will sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high after making purification for sin because he has completed the work that the Father has given him to do. And as we come to this passage, I just want to perhaps place us in the mindset of the Apostles. We think about the apostles after the crucifixion, even after examining the narrative of seeing Peter and John seeing, and John even believing that Christ has perhaps been raised from the dead. And even then, you see them go back. They place themselves into a locked room because why? They are still afraid of the Jews. Friends, when we come to this passage, I think we do well to exam, examine their circumstances, It is not as though they are walking into this room thinking that everything will all play out and be perfect in the end. There is still fear and trembling within them. They still have some timidity. They still think the Jews might come for them as well, that they might see themselves lifted up on a cross. This is the state that they are in as they're considering this. We even see this as they lock the doors. They refuse to allow anyone else in the room. And then by grace we have the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously appear in the room with them. And as he comes, he bids them peace. And this morning what I'd like to do, just as we introduce this passage, to examine the peace that Christ gives. Now, there are some that would approach this passage and simply say that Jesus is giving them just a simple Jewish welcome. He's simply simply engaging. This is how you started a conversation. And friends, that's true. In this day and time, the Jewish people, as they would interact with one another, they would simply say, peace be with you. Shalom would be the word that we would perhaps recognize. And that concept of peace be with you was not the idea of just some hello greeting. It actually had some depth to it. When when the Jewish people would look at another one and they'd say, peace be with you, the, the concept that they're trying to convey is we hope that the peace of God rests on you, that you have peace not only with him, but with mankind around you. We hope that you have a genuine peace. Now let's clarify this terminology because we use the word peace a bit more loosely than they did not peace in the sense that you have some type of resolve within you or perhaps there's some calmness in you, but as they're bestowing, as they're offering, as they're saying, peace be with you, they're hoping for something a bit more in depth. As a matter of fact, I would say they're hoping for the peace of God, a peace that is not something that is just a feeling within you, but is something that is in actuality positional, that what you need is not a peace that you feel, but you need a peace that is judicial in nature. You need a peace with God, not something that is a stall or something you are awaiting a war to erupt. You need genuine and lasting peace. And what you have the Lord Jesus give to his apostles as they are fearful in this room is a peace that is genuinely judicial, meaning that there is no enmity between them and God any longer. And then it even progresses to make certain that the peace that we have with God will expand into the life we live here below. So let's examine that this morning. John chapter 20 verse 19 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, what's most interesting about this is it seems as though he links this peace with something. As a matter of fact, he will say, Peace be with you twice in this passage, and both times he is linking it to something that he is bringing to them. So notice what the text says. As he gives them, Peace be with you in verse 19, he then says in verse 20, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He approaches his disciples who were in absolute fear and terror. You can imagine having a locked door and then someone appearing in them. Perhaps they found themselves a bit startled, but they were met with perhaps the sweetest of greetings that has ever been spoken because it was accompanied by something that was genuine and real. He was offering them peace, but he was not offering them peace in the sense that the Jewish people have offered each other peace in the past. It is not something that they are hoping will be accomplished in them. When Jesus walks in the room and says, peace be with you, it is not a greeting. It is a declaration. He is looking at his apostles and he is saying to them, I am not hoping that you have peace. I am telling you that you now, based upon the finished work that has been accomplished through the cross that I bore, declaratively, judicially, when you stand before God on the day of judgment, there will be no barrier between you and him. He has granted them peace. Now, the reason this is so important is because it is not the hoping of peace, but it is the giving of peace. Saints, if I could, just for a moment, we'll even see this at the end of this uh, text. But if I could, just for a moment, remind us, friends, that if you know Christ, if you have looked at him, if you have seen his pierced hands, his pierced side, and you have said, there is the one who will redeem me from the curse of the law. There is the one who took my sin. He is my sin bearer. He drank the cup of God's wrath in my stead then we do not approach the throne of glory with fear and trembling in the sense that we might be cast out. Yes, we do so because it is glorious, it is weighty, it is heavy, but never for fear of being cast out because Christ has bid you peace. And the peace that he gives you is not peace that disappoints. As a matter of fact, when we look forward into the book of Romans, Paul elaborates on this. And Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, you are not at war with God if Christ has bid you peace. It cannot be had for there is no reason for war. The war that God waged on the sinner was sin and Christ bore it all in his body. There is no more reason for warfare between God and his people who Christ atoned for. This is the security of the cross. The reason that we have the greatest and most glorious message, the Christians do, is because we don't offer people a hope of peace. We offer them genuine, real, lasting, eternal peace based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he walks in the room and bids them peace, he does not do so as a suggestion to them. He does so as a declaration to them. You have peace with God based upon my finished work. This is the splendor of the gospel. When we consider the glorious work of Christ, we do not go there fearing that we would be cast out. When we consider the finished and glorious work of Christ, we can go, as the writer of Hebrews would say, into the throne room of God with what? Hearts full of assurance and with confidence. Genuine, real, lasting, eternal confidence. Saints, the beauty of peace with God is first and foremost that you are experiencing it if you be in Christ now. You're not waiting for the gavel to fall, the gavel fell The gavel fell in Christ. You see the war that God would wage on you there. He did. He waged it excellently. He waged it perfectly. And yet still we we are here standing, rejoicing that we have peace with God because Christ was crushed on our behalf. Friends, the greatest frustration that I genuinely do have with the Christian faith oftentimes is that so many who profess it will say, I still feel it enmity. Perhaps it is that you feel as though as you go to bring the gospel to someone, your feet are still bound, but the beauty of the gospel is your, your, your feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You can bring these things boldly and fully because you even now experience peace with God. And as Paul would go on to write, it says, Through him we have, obtained, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, peace with God births praise below When we live the Christian life knowing that we are at peace with God, that there really is no enmity between him and I, that everything that would bar me from his presence has been cast onto Christ and and Christ has conquered it, then I go with confidence into the throne room of grace. There is no fear for my soul any longer. Instead, it is all glory and all joy and all peace. Because I have a sure thing. I have the surety of Christ's finished work, and that is indeed sufficient to bring peace But not only do we see Christ bid them peace this once, but he bids them peace again. And this time he connects it to something differently. When he looks at them, he bids them peace once again in verse 21. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then immediately connects it with this being sent out. But then attached to that is the breathing out of the spirit of God that he gives to his people. Now, the question perhaps may be asked, if I have peace with God uh, here below, I meaning there's nothing, there's nothing in between him and I. I have a right relationship with him based on the finished work of Jesus. How does that then impact me here below? How does that, how does that uh, affect the way that I live my life then? And the answer is rather simple. And Jesus gives it and connects it immediately to the giving of the Spirit. Because, friends, apart from Christ's finished work, let me just make this clear. You would not be indwelt by the Spirit of God. It is his gift to those whom he purchased. Even as we consider even going back to the book of Leviticus and seeing the instruments that were being used for, uh, for the day of atonement and things of that nature, it was it, very clearly blood would touch every instrument. And then immediately after the blood would, would touch it, oil would. In the exact same way, saints, those who've been pronounced clean by the blood of Jesus will also be indwelt by the Spirit of God that gives them life. That that Spirit of God that has been bestowed upon us. So when you look at this text, you'll see as it progresses forward, he says this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus then not only gives us confidence in the fact that we have no enmity between him. We have peace in this life and also in the life to come based upon his finished work. But we also experience peace here below by communion with the Godhead through the person of the Spirit. Oh, how tragic it is, saints. How rarely we consider the reality of the Spirit of God indwelling us. Just for a moment, when was the last time you considered that? When was the last time you paused and considered that all the promises that God gave to the apostles to receive the Holy Spirit of God has also been given to every saint and you stopped and you praised God that he has given you communion with himself through the person of the Spirit. That the Christian life you live is able to be lived because the Spirit of God indwells you. Oh, how we take him for granted. Not like the charismatics do that create pseudo signs and wonders. We take him for granted because you believe you waking up this morning and being here looking to Jesus was something that was born of you. It wasn't. It was born in you by the Spirit. When we consider the peace of God that we have here below, let's just consider some of the things that Jesus has called the, uh, the Holy Spirit. And then also we'll see is what Paul would refer to it as. In John 14, 16, Jesus, if he's comforting his disciples that he is leaving, he is telling them that they will send him, that he will send them a helper, one that will indwell them and keep them. He also tells them that not to fear that you will be led astray because in you will be given the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth will keep you. In Romans 8, as Paul considers it, he calls it the spirit of the mortification of Sin. Friends, how is it that you can live with peace with God in the sense that there's no longer anything in between you and him? The, the consequence for sin has been dealt with, yet sin still remain in your body and, and, and remain there in peace. Friends, if there's peace with God, there cannot be peace with sin. The consequence is that sin must be put to death and the spirit of God that he gives you gives you everything that you need to wage a holy war against that which Christ died for. Put it to death by the spirit. Not only that, but in Romans eight fifteen, he calls it the spirit of adoption. Friends, if you ever perhaps find yourself feeling like an orphan, an outcast, one who does not have a family, Rest comfortably knowing that if you be in Christ, if, they, if you've been judicially pronounced at peace with God, then you can rest comfortably knowing that you died at his table as a son or a daughter because you have been adopted into his family by the spirit of adoption. But We also see this in Ephesians 1.13 and perhaps this is the greatest peace that we can be given. In Ephesians 1.13, as Paul's elaborating on the glories of the gospel, he starts with the person of God the Father, works his way to God the Son and then brings in and maybe crescendos it with the spirit of God. He tells us this, that he is the spirit guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. Friends, the spirit guarantees our hope, as the song says, until redemption comes. Meaning that the redemption that Christ provides for us is most certainly of the soul, but it is also of the body. When we look at the spirit guaranteeing our inheritance, it is a guarantee that not only part of the man will be redeemed and made whole. But the entirety of the man will be redeemed and made whole. The salvation that Christ has provided on the cross and then conveyed through the Spirit of God is one that the Spirit constantly guarantees for us. Now, what should that do in us? Because we think about the relationship that we have with Christ, we think about being obedient unto Him because we love Him. But I think one of the things that is most important for us to understand is it creates in us an adoration. One of the things that is most difficult to teach when we talk about discipleship, the motto of this church is follow Jesus, make disciples. One of the things that's difficult in discipleship is teaching adoration, is teaching love and affection for. But, friends, can I just say, I don't really believe it can be taught. It can only be pointed to. And when we consider even this passage, you'll notice that as the apostles see the Lord Jesus, notice the language that you see here. It says in verse 20, when he had said this to them, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's consider where this passage started. We're locked behind a room. We're fearful. The Jews may be coming for us. And if they come for us, they will most certainly crucify us. We will die like him. And then, at the presence of Christ, his proclamation, and the realization that death is defeated, the language changes so dramatically, they were glad. Friends, can I just maybe offer to you this hope? We who have seen the resurrected Christ have nothing, nothing but gladness. Should we see him and know him, can there be fear and trembling with us? For more than a moment, Philippians, as Paul would write, would tell us to let our reasonableness be be made known to everyone. And the reason that he says that is because immediately following the next phrase is, the Lord is at hand. Friends, and not the Lord who is perhaps in their minds even in this moment conquered by death, but they reach out and they touch the resurrected Christ. There is nothing but gladness for them. There is nothing but hope for them. It makes me think of the story of Daniel and Darius. You're all familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Darius, after throwing Daniel into the den, finds himself in anguish. Literally the language there is an anguish of spirit and Darius runs back to see if Daniel has survived the night and he cries out, Daniel, Daniel, is your God whom you serve continually been able to save you from the mouths of the lions? Daniel responds, simply says, O king, live forever. But what's most interesting is the language that is used in in reference to Darius and he was exceedingly glad. Friends, Daniel didn't actually defeat death, yet Darius was exceedingly glad. How much more so then should we, at the thought, at the vision, at the revelation of the resurrected Christ, be exceedingly glad, be forever, constantly at peace? But not only do we see that the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us peace, he has also brought us, indeed, a mission. In John 20, 21, it goes on to say this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, the very first thing we need to understand here is that Jesus is the excellent sent one, that he is the model, he is the one that we look to. And, friends, as we examine this, let's not do so just in the sense of him being sent from the incarnation forward, because should we understand the scripture rightly, the covenant that took place that would send Christ into the world happened in eternity past. John's even been breaking this down for us. In John 6, he says, All those the Father gave to me. When did that occur? We know from the scriptures quite clearly that all this happened before the foundation of the world. Friends, when we look at this language, when Jesus says, As the Father sent me, we do well to pause for a moment and be grateful because from the foundation of the world, Christ has been the sent one. He has been the one that would come into the world, that he would indeed take on human flesh, that he would humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Why? That his name may be exalted. That his name may be praised in every tribe, tongue, and nation. That no tongue would be still of the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And friends, tongues may be still for a while. But at the end of the age, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No tongue will be silent. And oh, how we need to remember these great truths that Christ, had, that Christ is the sent one. But we also need to pause for a moment and rejoice that he has invited us in. Forgive me, not invited. He has commanded us to partake in his glorious mission. Not in the sense that he is the sent one and we should take on uh, our own sentness, something opposite of what he has been sent into, but instead that we should enter into the mission that Christ has been given. And he has indeed invited us into that. What is the mission then? Is it something different than what Christ has already accomplished? Do we go forth with a different ministry? By no means. Paul makes it clear that we are ministers of reconciliation. Reconciliation based on what? Based on the perfect reconciliation that Christ has provided for all his people. Saints, the beauty of this is even as he gives this to the apostles and he says, I'm sending you into the world. I'm sending you into the world for a specific task. And you being sent into the world for this task is a simple one. It's go forth with the message of the gospel. I have already done all that is necessary to bring people into the glorious person of Christ. That you can go and you can be in him. That's the message that we bring. But then there's a couple of things that I think we need to pause and ask for just a minute. Because when you look at this and you see that he's sending out his disciples. This glorious sent one is sending his own people out. I think we do well to pause for a minute and say, how? How? How can we go forth with the message of the gospel? How can we be sent like you were sent? We've already answered this to some degree, but the scriptures make it clear in verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Friends, have you ever considered the true loftiness of the Christian mission? Let's not even take into account the actual faithful living that, that we are called to obedience unto God, love for Christ, all those things that only the Spirit of God can birth in us. But then have you even considered the fact that the call of the Christian life is to proclaim the gospel all over the world, to look at dead men, men who are dead in their trespasses and sins, as, John, as Romans 3 would say, who are haters of God, not seeking him at all, and then speak to them in such a way that they would come to life and adore the same Christ that you're preaching. Have you ever thought of the folly of that? We have difficulties convincing anyone in Memphis who has the best barbecue? How are we going to convince anyone to come to life, to live? And the answer is you can't just to, just to perhaps open our minds just a little bit. You see the language here in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Now, the reason this is so important is because it communicates to us first and foremost that John is making clear that the Holy Spirit of God coming to the saints is based in, is rooted in Christ's person. He sends it out. It's his to give. But it also in the language that's presented makes us perhaps consider two major events that occur in the Old Testament. And the very first one is creation. When you look at the account of God breathing life into Adam, it's a very interesting language. The concept is that he breathed the breath of God into him. The language be ruach of the Lord. That means breath. That means, as we'll find later on, the spirit of God. The language here anticipates the fact that it is the spirit of God who gives life to men. Not just physically, but spiritually. Adam lived because God breathed the breath of life into him. Every saint that has ever drawn a spiritual breath was born of the Spirit of God. That means that it is an impossibility for us to carry the gospel apart from him. The reason that Jesus commissions them, says you're going out just as I have gone out, and then on the heels of this gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit is I would have to imagine that the disciples would be be nothing but fear and trembling. And yet he comforts them with what? The helper, the one who leads us into truth the assurance of our salvation, all of these things he gives to them. We see it in creation, but we also see it in the story of the valley of dry bones. There's this question that's asked, and I think we do well to ask it today. Can these bones live? Ezekiel looks out over an army of dry bones, empty, nothing on them. And God asks the question, can these bones live? Ezekiel responds, only you know, Lord this glorious scene erupts where almost every, all of these soldiers come to life. They're clothed with their skin, they're made whole, and yet still they need breath. Friends, that is the state of every natural man. That is the state we were once in, lest the breath of God come into us. And what we find here is that through Christ's finished work and through his gift of the Spirit of God, not only do we have peace with him, but we have the Gift of the Spirit to carry out the mission that Christ has given. It is an impossibility apart from Him. Yet with Him, not only is it possible, it is sure. We do not rest in a partly powerful Spirit, one who might be effectual, one who might accomplish His purpose. He is either God or He is not. And if the Spirit of God is God, which we know quite clearly He is, does He fail? the answer to that is no. When he breathes life into men, they live. And so we see that the Spirit of God proceeds forth from Christ. It gives life to dead men. And then also we see that it is at the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the Spirit is given uniquely. Because what we see here is not the giving of the Spirit like at Pentecost. Instead, it is very much like Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in John 13. He's telling them, he proclaims them, you are clean. And yet, the action that is necessary for cleanliness to take root has not yet occurred. Friends, in the exact same way, when Jesus approaches the apostles here and he says, and he says, the whole, receive the Holy Spirit, he is promising them that there will be a moment where the Spirit of God will come in a unique way and it will dramatically impact the way they live. It'll change them forever. One of the primary reasons we know this is because on the latter half of this book, you see the apostles up and go fishing. Got the Great Commission laid out for you already? No, they're waiting. But when the Spirit of God comes and indwells them, there's no more fishing for fish. They've been given the task to be fishers of men and God empowers them for it. But what's perhaps most lovely about it is it allows them to live simply obedient. Just moments before this, if we were just to take a couple of months, we could consider that Peter is the man who's standing before a maidservant in fear and trembling. And yet after the Spirit of God comes, he finds himself walking out of the Sanhedrin being beaten and abused. And he says, let's rejoice for we we have been kind of worthy to suffer for Christ. What has changed? Has Peter just had a paradigm shift? No. The Spirit of God has indwelt him uniquely. And that is the indwelling that every saint has been given. And thus we stand here today with the Spirit of God indwelling us, giving life to our mortal bodies, allowing us to live the Christian life. And we often overlook it because it's become so normalized. The reason that the charismatics are able to give all of these pseudo signs and wonders today is because the proclamation of the Spirit's work in the saint has been just absolutely relegated to second tier. You live the Christian life. You love Jesus. You love your family like you're called to do. You obey Him. You have affection for Him only because the Spirit of God gives it life. Friends, that's the supernatural work of God. To relegate it to anything natural or normalized is to denigrate the Spirit's power. It is mighty altogether to give life to dead men. We do well to pause and to rejoice in it because it is indeed the power that gives us life and animates us to be obedient unto Christ. But that's not where this text ends. In John chapter 20, verse 23, we have an important, a lovely text. Now, let me go ahead and preface it with this. This is one of the most abused texts in the entirety of the book of John at bare minimum, perhaps in the scriptures altogether. Now, let's just read it. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I want to give you the abuse position because I think it's important for us to understand before we dive into what I believe to be the correct interpretation of this passage. The abuse position is this, that Christ is giving authority to forgive and withhold forgiveness to the apostles and thus the church, to those who are of a different spiritual caliber or office, they have the ability to forgive sin or withhold forgiveness not rooted in the gospel. That is A view of this passage. The whole concept is that if a priest or someone who is in a higher position of authority spiritually than you, or perhaps a higher spiritual caliber, which by the way is not a thing, we are a priesthood of all believers, every believer. There's no more spirit of God in me than there is in you. Let no man convince you otherwise. But what you see here is this being given unto them that these men can then go forth and proclaim, You're forgiven. And then they can even, in the exact same vein, withhold forgiveness. All of this, by the way, being apart from the gospel, being apart from trusting in the finished work of Christ. Now, the difficulty with that is, first and foremost, you never see an apostle do it. Not one time in all the book of Acts and every recording that we have, there's not a moment where you see an apostle look at someone and guarantee the forgiveness of their sin apart from the gospel. There's also not a single moment where they remove someone from fellowship that they say, hey, get out. You don't have salvation apart from the already mandated language of church discipline. So what then does this passage mean? Is it Christ giving a unique authority to the apostles that allows them to forgive and also withhold forgiveness of sins from basically anyone based upon their own choices? By no means. And the reason this frustrates me to such a degree is because it has denigrated the true meaning of this passage. It's taking away its loveliness. Let's look at this for a moment. This text is lovely because it allows us to comfort those who have trusted Christ. The beauty of the gospel proclamation is when someone tells me that they have trusted in Christ, that they have looked to him, even as we've observed the Lord's table this morning, we look at them and we say, friends, your sins are forgiven. Not, not if, not perhaps, but if you've looked to Jesus, if you've trusted in the gospel, I can, t- I can say with confidence, based upon the profession, based upon the fact that you are living the Christian life, that you are being obedient unto him, I can say with confidence, your sins are forgiven. It's called the security of the believer, if you will. But friends, when we come to this, the church of God, those who have the spirit of God can look at people who make profession of faith, not saying that, they are, that their salvation is sure because they are great, but because Christ's gospel is perfect. That when they say they've trusted in Jesus, then we can say with great confidence, then your sins are forgiven. And this we see the apostles do over and over and over again. You've trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. But we also have a second nature of this. The text is lovely because it gives us authority to warn those who have rejected Christ. Let me say with great certainty, there are not multiple pathways. It's very clear, even in Christ giving this to the apostles, he tells them, if they have rejected me, there's no hope for them. There's no forgiveness of sin. And we can say with great confidence, as we look at anyone who has rejected the risen Christ, your sins are not forgiven. And the reason this is important, friends, is because if we miss this point, we miss two things. We miss number one, boldness in gospel proclamation. That when someone says to you, I, I don't trust him. then you can say with comment, your sins are not forgiven. You need to repent. But you can also say to the brother whose conscience is weak. Who is in need of comfort. Brother, you've trusted in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You've been made whole. Look unto him. And we do so not timidly, but we do so confidently. Once again, not because God has given us a secondary mission, but he has invited us by his grace into the central mission of gospel expansion in the world. We bring people the good news of the gospel and we offer them not a message of ifs and mights, but a message of certainty. Should you believe the gospel, you will live. And so perhaps to sum it up, the text does not give unique authority to the apostles to declare forgiveness apart from the gospel Instead, it is, the, it is Christ's charge to them and every believer to carry the surety of the gospel by the Spirit and with confidence. Friends, if we've entered into the peace of God, if the Spirit of God is then conveying that peace throughout our lives, and then we're given the clear command to go forth to be sent just as he has been sent with a gospel proclamation, friends, we go confidently knowing that the gospel we have is sure and steady. Should we see one repent, we comfort them. Should we see one reject, we warn them. We have been given a great gospel message, one that grants us peace, and it only bursts in us a strong desire to see every man come to peace with their creator. Let's pray together. Father, we come rejoicing in the Spirit. We come resting in the fact that he is able, that he is mighty, that even the prayers that we offer are empowered by him. We're reminded from Romans 8 that even when we are lost for words, the Spirit groans on our behalf. And so, Father, I ask you this morning, Lord, perhaps it be that there is one here who is not trusted in Christ. Lord, may he be warned that there is no forgiveness apart from him. May he be warned that there is no loveliness apart from him, no beauty apart from him, no glory apart from him, but only death. And Lord, for those of us here who have trusted Christ, would you remind us of the surety, the security, as it were, of that proclamation, that we have called you, Lord, knowing that all those who call in the name of the Lord will indeed be saved and secured. So Father, we ask you, would you convey these great truths to us? Would you remind us of the Spirit's presence? And above all, would you cause in us a deep and, and constant adoration of Christ? It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.